Well, we just sang these words. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness. You give hope, you restore every heart that is broken. Great are you, Lord. I can't think of a better way to introduce what, I, what God has put on my heart to share this morning. And it, it's because God is great. The Lord is great on the sunny days and on the days that are not, the dark days. Or the days like yesterday that was both rolled into one, right? Did you guys see the weather yesterday? It was crazy. Like I, I had my plan. You know, I looked at the weather. It was supposed to be... Nice, pretty nice. I didn't see any rain on the forecast, high temperatures. I was like, sweet, okay, in the morning I'm going to work at church. In the afternoon I'm going to do all my yard work, mow my lawn in the jungle that's on the very back. And I'm gonna, then at night I'm going to play soccer and it's going like, to be a dry, nice, warm game. It's going to be awesome. And that's not what happened. Okay, in the afternoon I was mowing on my tractor and all of a sudden it started raining. And I was like, okay, well, a little rain is fine, I think. And it starts raining harder. And all of a sudden it's really raining hard, so I pull my lawnmower into the little shed in the back of my property. I'm just sitting there watching the rain, thinking it's going to go real fast here because it wasn't even on, you know, the forecast. And then it gets really hard. And then I see like my whole table in my back of my porch just fly across the, I think I like saw Dorothy and Toto and it was just crazy. I was like, this is Windiana that I live in. And uh, so my whole day was changed, you know, mud fest last night. I mean, it was just like, you know, playing soccer. I mean, so... I want to talk this morning, though, about a different kind of storm, okay, a different kind of storm. And out of nowhere, somebody can find themselves with these, these clouds, these dark clouds that kind of hang over their mind, hang over their heart, and it can wreak all kinds of havoc. And metaphorically, sometimes people are sitting inside the shed on their lawnmower kind of just waiting like, is this going to pass? I'm talking about depression and anxiety. And the way a person can feel when they face these things, when they endure these things, it can be very difficult. They maybe didn't see it coming. They definitely feel like they don't have control. What do we do when we're caught in this storm? Where do we go for refuge? What does God's word have to say about that? My goal this morning is for you to have hope. If you struggle yourself, maybe today you get a sliver of hope. But for those who may not struggle at this point with it themselves, we all love and know people who battle this. And my goal is for us today to begin to understand this in a biblical framework, to be able to love those that struggle, to have a heart attitude and posture towards them that can actually help them through the storm. So turn with me to Psalm 31, the book of Psalms. And if you kind of take your thumb and go to the, almost the middle of your Bible, you should be close And then find the big number 31, Psalm 31. You may or may not know this, but the book of Psalms was the songbook, the Psalter for the Israelites. And so as David wrote many of these and other authors, these would have been the songbooks in the the pews, so to speak, that they would have sang with. These were designed for the people of God to sing. They, They came from a heart that was It was deeply personal, but then it was shared with the congregation. And this is a lament psalm. There are more lament psalms than any other kind of psalm. Maybe you didn't know that. So this is a lament psalm. We come to Psalm 31, and I want to read this together. It's a little longer, but if you'll follow along, I'm going to read the whole thing, all right? Psalm 31, starting in verse 1. Here's what David writes. He says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. 
In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Verse 6. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side. And as they scheme together against me, they plot to take my life. Verse 14, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is God's word. Now, Psalm 31 we know was precious to the Israelites. We know it was precious to God's people. All of the Psalms were, but particularly Psalm 31 was quoted by a number of characters in the Bible. Maybe you picked up on one or two of those references. But first, in verse 6, Jonah recites verse 6, in the belly of the whale, like in his darkest day when he's been swallowed by the whale. If you don't know that story, I said whale, fit, great fish, whatever. Okay, if you don't know that story, go read it. It's amazing, okay? He's in the belly of the whale. All hope is gone, and he recites verse 6. Interestingly, he says, I hate those who pay regardless uh, to worthless idols. Actually, the way he says it is, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. It's kind of interesting, given the theme of steadfast love here. 
Jeremiah uh, takes verse 13, terror on every side. He, he writes that at least six or seven times in his writings. He loves that phrase, terror on every side. And Jeremiah saw a lot of things, and Jeremiah struggled as a prophet. But of course, most well-known and most importantly, Christ himself, verse 5. You remember, before he dies, probably his last words, he says what to God? He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. He quotes Psalm 31. And so when they're quoting a psalm, they're thinking about the whole psalm. They're thinking about the context here. Because this psalm can be applied numerous different people, numerous different situations, it shows us how flexible it really is that you as a believer going through whatever you go through can come to this psalm. You can find refuge. You can apply it to your life situation, particularly in times of abandonment, shame, despair. This is a lament psalm after all. So Psalm 31 can be a medicine that we need in the midst of this stuff. I want to give you three words this morning as we consider depression and anxiety. Three words. The first one is complexity. Complexity. One of the struggles with a sermon like this is to to know how to address a topic that is so vast and and so multifaceted. And how do you even wrap your your hands around it? How, How do you pick a text? And there's so many things we could say about anxiety or depression. I just want to begin the conversation today. And I hope that this conversation will continue in your small group and in your, your friendship group and in your family, and you'll just talk about this stuff. We're going to primarily look at Psalm 31. We'll consider a few other texts, but I want to begin to help you formulate a biblical framework for understanding anxiety and depression. And I say begin because the topic is complex. The topic is complex. I mean, if you think about all the the, the things that are out there about depression and anxiety, all the opinions, all the disagreement, even in the Christian world about these things, it is complex. Joe Carter, who writes for the Gospel Coalition, he gives, this is just one example, four types of anxiety. And not everything I share will be up on the screen, so if you want a resource later, send me a message and I'll get that to you, but he gives four types of anxiety, and I think a similar thing could be said for depression, really. One is God-given, a God-given emotional response for our benefit. So it could be that anxiety comes out of this God-given emotion, because you know, there are things in life that we should be fearful of, that it makes sense to be fearful of, but all of a sudden out of that comes this deep anxiety. So it could be a God-given emotional response. Two, it could be a disordered physiological response that's not sinful. So something in our, in our body or mind that, that we don't know why or we feel that way, and it might not even be tied to a particular event in our life. We just have this thing happening, and it's not sinful, something going on. Three, a natural consequence of sin. So maybe it's not sin itself, but if you break God's laws, his commandments, and you know you're, you're dishonoring him, guess what you're going to feel? You're going to feel anxiety and you're going to feel depression, maybe to a really severe place because you have sinned against God. So that could be the case. Or four, it is a sinful response to God's providential care. This is anxiety he's talking about. So you know what God's word says and you just decide not to believe it, right? So yes, anxiety could be sin in that case. But it's so multifaceted, it's hard to even know what what I'm struggling with. Where did that come from? David Murray, who uh, he actually wrote a book called Christians Get Depressed Too. He gives four causes for depression. So not only is the topic complex, but the causes for depression or anxiety are complex. Like, where does it come from? And, and he shares in his book these four causes. It could be stress, 
It could be psychology, which is the way we think, or it could be sickness or sin. Okay, so those are the four he gives. Stress, psychology, sickness, or sin. When I look at the Psalms, and Psalm 31 is a good test case, many times it is a confluence of all of those coming together. You know, it could be a life situation of stress. It could be physical. It could be sin. It could be the way I think. There, there's just so many things going on, and just look at Psalm 31. I mean, does David have stress in his life? Does he? I mean, he's being chased by all these enemies. He is hiding out, and by the way, has to run a kingdom. So there's a lot of stress on this man, and part of his seeming depression or anxiety is a result of that stress. But there's also mind things going on for him. He, he, he kind of goes between faith in God and despair, and faith in God and despair. We often see that in the Lament Psalms. It's like he has a battle of the mind going on. There is some psychology here. Is he sick? You know, I don't know, but he describes his condition with physical terms. It, it probably is just imagery, so we understand how deep he's struggling, but maybe. And he says in the one verse here, he says, my strength fails because of my iniquity. I mean, every human being is a sinner, so when we're struggling, we think to ourselves, is this because of my sin? I know I've sinned against God. Could be. Could be because of somebody else's sin. And, and oftentimes, it's multiple things coming together, like in this psalm here. So just understanding the causes is complex. Why? Because humans are complex. Human beings themselves are complex. That's why the causes are complex. And David says in Psalm 139 that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what he says about the human body, that God has made us fearfully and wonderfully. And I don't think we consider what this actually means. I say that because I think sometimes we read it sarcastically, especially if you battle with like something of the mind or one of these real deep struggles. I'm wonderfully made, all right, God. Yeah, really made me wonderfully. Well, it doesn't mean in the, in the passage there in Psalm 139 that we look at our, our, our beings, our bodies, and we say to God, two thumbs up, God. Yeah, I'm wonderful. That's not what it means when it says we're wonderfully and fearfully made. What it means is that when we consider the human body, the complexity of it, the mystery of it, we are, we are driven to wonder, to amazement, to even fear of God. Because we do not understand what is happening sometimes in our minds and in our bodies. And so if anyone should be able to quote this verse, it should be the person who deeply struggles with depression or anxiety. And they can say to themselves or say to God, you know, my mind and body is wonderfully made. God, I, I don't know what's going on, but you do. And I trust that, yes, I am made wonderfully and fearfully. I fear you, God, because I don't even get it. I wonder what is going on. That's what this is talking about in Psalm 139, that we are made in a, in a complex way, and, and only God knows what's going on in our tangled emotions and our, our, our thought processes. You know, any good doctor knows that the body is complex, won't they? I mean, any doctor who study the, the body knows it's complex. Some doctors specialize in one particular part of the body, right? They spend their life dedicated to that. Some doctors spend their life dedicated to the mind or the brain. I mean, today, some even, all they do is focus on neural pathways. That's like their specialty. And so these doctors, they study and they study and they realize, man, the human body 
is complex. There is not one doctor who can possibly know all the nuances and all the things about our bodies because God has made them wonderfully and he's made them fearfully. And we've learned a lot over the years, and I think even in particularly recent years about the mind and about the brain, but there is still so much to learn, still so much that we don't know. One of the things I wanted to say in this sermon is that we should avail ourselves to the research to the truth that is out there, even outside of the Word of God, because this is most important, and this is given to us by God for life and godliness, but there is other truth out there that God has revealed to people. There's a quote, you may have heard it before, it goes like this, all truth is God's truth. You ever heard that? And we don't know exactly where it began, probably St. Augustine said something very similar, and then Thomas Aquinas developed it. But John Calvin says it really succinctly. He says this, All truth is from God, and consequently, if wicked men have said anything that is true and just, we ought not to reject it, for it has come from God. So God has given us a lot of knowledge through doctors and through scientists about anxiety and depression, and we should avail ourselves to that. We should learn about it. We We should benefit from the things that God has been so merciful to show us. Even when it comes to medicine, He's allowed us to understand the human body a little bit more. Now, we're far from figuring this out in a slam dunk, right? But he's given truth in different parts of the world. So we should make use of all of that. But I want you to hear something really, really clearly. And this is something you could write down. Only the biblical worldview is robust enough to provide true and complete help with anxiety and depression. Only the biblical worldview Doctors can help and scientists can help, but only the biblical worldview can give holistic help. Why do I say that? Because the human body is more than a collection of molecules, right? It's not just a physical thing. We are not just molecules assembled together, and if we just figure it out, we figure the chemistry out, right, then we'll be completely resolved, we'll be completely healed from depression or anxiety. Verse 9 in our text, David says, my soul And my body also. There are two parts to a human, material and immaterial. In Genesis, we read and we think about the way God made humans. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the earth. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So man is both physical and he's spiritual. He's material and immaterial. And so if we're only addressing the physical part, if we're only addressing the brain, the body, then we're we're not giving complete help. We're not giving complete hope. So yes, we need what scientists have to offer. We need what doctors have to offer. But more than that, We need truth that only comes from God, who is the creator, who who not only knows my soul, he can soothe my soul. Think about David. David writes these words. Before there's hardly any medicines available, before we don't, I mean, they didn't know a lot about the the human brain back, back then. They didn't know a lot about depression. And yet, God provided what he needed in that time to at least make it through, and not just make it through, but be used tremendously by God. And look how God is using him right now in our lives. As we read these words that he penned, that God used. So if you're a person who battles with anxiety and depression, you're in the right place this morning. Because God's word has something to say. Something that can provide hope. Something that comforts our troubled souls. 
And when you start there, when you start with, where's my heart? Where's my hope? What's my refuge? When you start there and then you add the other blessings that God has given us and the mercies that he's given us through doctors and through counselors, then you can start to have comprehensive care. If you yourself have never experienced these storm clouds of depression or anxiety, I want to encourage you. You love somebody who does, I'm sure. And what I want to do is I want to set the stage for you to enter into this humbly. Because if it is so complex, if depression and anxiety are complex, if the, the, the causes for them are complex, if the human body is complex, you and I should be humble. And as we talk to those that we love, we should be humble. We don't have it figured out. And if you actually want to be a blessing to somebody who struggles, you need to come at them with humility. It's the people that are proud that I think actually cause more damage and say, I, I know what your problem is. You must have unconfessed sin or you must not have enough faith. No, it's a complex issue and it's multiple things. So enter into it humbly and then we can do good for those that we love. So complexity is a word. I want you to have a second word here this morning, weakness, weakness. Did you notice the emphasis on weakness? That As David writes, he, he just shares his weakness with us. Look at verse 7 through 10. Just kind of glance down there. You're going to see in verse 7, he talks about his affliction and the distress of his soul. Verse 9, he talks about distress again and how he's wasted from grief, both body and soul. Verse 10, his life is spent with sorrow and sighing and his bones waste away. A very vivid, descriptive way of saying it. It's a vivid description of, of most people who struggle with depression, how they feel, spent, powerless. But David's also dealing with anxiety, verse 11, verse 13. He has all these adversaries. He has this fear, deep fear that he's going to be exposed, the shame that he has is going to be seen by other people. And, and he hears whispering, terror on every side. He's fearful. He has reasons to be fearful, Right? But at times, I think it overtakes him, and he struggles with his anxiety. I don't know about you, but I love these lament psalms. Why do I love them? Because it shows us that, that, that there is a language for our suffering. When you struggle, you can take these words of David, and you can speak them to God. You can, you can recite scripture, and you can say, this gives words to how I feel right now. I've often read a psalm to somebody, and they said, man, I could not have said it any better. That exactly describes how I feel. And a lot of times when we're in the midst of depression or anxiety, we don't even know how to express it, but here's David expressing it for us. They remind us that we're not alone, that there are many people who have battled with the similar feelings that you are battling with or those that you love are battling with. And not only are we not alone, there are people who have struggled. There are some people who have struggled who God has used mightily. God has used them in amazing ways. So what does that mean? That means that even if you battle... And even if you battle for years with this, God could still use you very powerfully. Scott Saul said, uh, said this quote I was reading, and it's, I think it's excellent. He says, afflicted does not mean ineffective. Damaged does, does not mean done. Afflicted does not mean ineffective. Damaged does not mean done. David seems to battle with a damaged mind at times. Well, he's far from done. God is going to use him to be the greatest king Israel ever saw, write all of this scripture. So you may feel, very much may feel damaged. And maybe in some regards you are. 
but you're not done. God is going to do something through you. What do we learn in Romans 8? But that there's a work that he's doing in us. All good things, all bad things, all struggles together for good and for his glory. I, I really believe that, that the best thing we can do with this whole discussion about anxiety and depression, the best thing you can do if you struggle or if you love somebody who struggles is to develop our theology of weakness. To, to know what the Bible has to say about weakness, because a lot of Christians are very inept when it comes to this. In fact, they, they run from weakness wherever they can. Surely God has good things for me. I'm an overcomer. I, I, I don't want weakness, and so I, I'm, my main goal is to get rid of weakness, to live the good life, the good life that God's promised for me. Yeah, well, when you read, read Scripture and you study the lament psalms or Job or some of the poetry or, I mean, I could go on and on, Paul's weaknesses, they're... There's a biblical theology here of weakness, and it's not that Christians are not to be weak. No, not at all. At the core, depression and anxiety are weakness. And while every human doesn't struggle themselves with this particular type of weakness, make no mistake about it, every human being has weakness, some weakness. Why? We live in a fallen world. You might actually be surprised how many people do, do battle depression or anxiety. They say that in this year, one in 10 will battle with, with depression. I think the numbers are even higher for anxiety. In their lifetime, 25% of people, according to studies, will at some point battle depression. Th that's a high number of people. So you may not struggle with that right now, or you may never struggle with it, but we all struggle with weakness. And by the way, anxiety and depression are in some, in some ways are on the rise, and they have been ever since we've been digitally connected. And you can, I'm not going to be, I don't have time to get into the correlation between social media and anxiety and depression, but it's there. And I, do yourself a favor, go home and research it. Children, more than ever, battling depression, suicide. I just was listening to a podcast yesterday, and young girls, ages 10 through 14, that's on the rise as far as suicide. It's always been that, that, that boys commit suicide more than girls. And that's starting to, that gap's starting to close a little bit. It, it, is, it is everywhere. You may not battle it with it yourself, but I promise you, you know and love somebody that does. Why? We live in a fallen world. And I'm afraid that, that within the Christian community, there is a stigma that's swirling around these two topics. So much so that we won't tell somebody about it. I don't want to be weak. I don't, I don't want people to know did I battle this dark thing? And so I'm afraid that, that we would be surprised if we knew how many people struggled because we don't talk about it, because it's, it's one of those things that has a stigma on it. I'm hoping this morning we could start to get rid of that. The truth is this. Those that battle with anxiety and depression are not a strange class of people. I'm glad I don't struggle with that. I'm glad I'm not like them. They're regular human beings who deal with a weakness, a very, very incredible weakness. And those who experience it are much more alike those that don't than they are different. Again, we live in a fallen world. Romans 8, we've been, we've been going through this book, right? Let me just read a couple of verses from Romans 8. And notice the weakness and the struggles that we have in this life. For I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Romans 8 goes on and says that we as humans groan inwardly for the redemption of our bodies. And this is Paul speaking to believers who have a new mind, who are new creations, and yet still the default human language is groaning. We live in a world that is broken and we all suffer. We are all weak. Christians are not exempt. It's not like, well, if you're a believer, you don't struggle with these things. No, no, we're susceptible to all the things in this world, believer, unbeliever alike. And oftentimes, it's not correlated to a particular sin. It's just because you're human and because the human condition involves weakness and fragility. Gerald Wilson said this about the, the Psalms, Lament Psalms. The whole point of the Lament Psalms is that those who put their trust in Yahweh continue to suffer. I think there's numerous points why God gave us the Lament Psalms, but he's saying one of those reasons, indeed, in his mind, the, the, the primary reason is to show us that the Christian, the person who believes in Yahweh, suffers. Because if you read other portions of the Old Testament, you, and you only read those portions, you can come away with, you serve God, you serve Yahweh, and you prosper. God gives you what you need. I mean, that's what it says in a number of the portions of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. But then we have Job, and then we have the Lament Psalms, which show us, indeed, Christians do suffer in this world. I'm so glad for them, because they help us make sense of why we might be struggling. I sometimes get asked this question, numerous times I've been asked this question, is anxiety sin? Is depression sin? And I want to clear that up for us this morning. Strictly speaking, I do not believe that anxiety and depression are sin. They can be opportunities for sin. They always are opportunity for sin. And again, remember, this is multifaceted. Sometimes maybe, yes, you can say, this sin led to this. But there's other times where you cannot. So I think to make a blanket statement and say, yes, anxiety and depression are sin is wrong. It's weakness. It's weakness that God has allowed into our life. Remember that emotions are God-given and emotions are healthy. I mean, we live in a very uh, a crazy world, and we're vulnerable as humans. There are some things that we should probably be afraid of, and there's some things that we should probably be sad about. But what is anxiety but fear that has grown and has taken a life of its own, and, and now it's a crippling fear? Or depression, it's a sadness that is kind of hung over us, and, and now it overshadows everything, and so it's an, a crippling sadness. But those emotions in and of themselves are not sinful they're given to us by God, but now all of a sudden they've, they've, they've become something that dominates. We are weaker than we realize. And God wants us to be like a child, to, to rely on him, to trust in him that he would be our refuge. And we have to be honest about this, that sometimes God allows us to suffer for years, maybe decades, maybe till the day that he calls us home with some of these type of things. And that's pretty discouraging, right? Like, we kind of gravitate more towards the health and wealth preaching that says, yeah, you give God your, your money, and you, and you give God yourself, and you worship him, and he's going to take care of all that sickness and all that financial problems and, all, and the depression and the anxiety. We kind of like that. But I want to tell you that though it's discouraging to know that God allows these things sometimes for the rest of our lives, it's also brimming with hope. Why? You say, that's not very hopeful. Oh, but it is, because if you consider this, the hope that comes with this theology of weakness. So hope is your third word, by the way, hope. 
The key is this, when we develop a robust theology of weakness, now we understand something. When you study this Bible, you see that weakness is something that God allows. Indeed, doesn't just allow, but ordains. Why? For our growth, for our good, Romans 8 says, so we become like Jesus Christ. And so that God is glorified. So he gets the glory, not us, because we're weak. He's strong. So if I'm going to battle something for the rest of my life, every moment is an opportunity to trust in the strength of God and for God to showcase his glory, because I can't do it. God can. That's hopeful. To understand weakness according to Scripture means that, yes, I may battle that weakness every day of my life, I pray God gives me mercy and and God relieves me. He may. But even if he doesn't, it's an opportunity for him to show up with his power and his grace and his enabling. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's writing. Paul understood this well. He says this, but he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Remember, Paul had this thorn in the flesh and he asked God to remove it. And God didn't remove it. He goes on, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So to be weak with whatever area, fill in the blank, in this instance of depression and anxiety, is an opportunity to be strong in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 13, 4, talking about Jesus Christ. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. And a couple verses down, Paul says, I'm glad that when I'm weak, you're strong. God did something through Paul's weakness in the life of the believers He made them strong through Paul's weakness. Think about what God is doing in our lives through the weakness of David. As he shares vulnerably and honestly, and these are the words of God, what God is doing in the lives of other people through our weakness, we cannot even see sometimes. Weakness leads to God's strength. Weakness leads to God's strength. Let's look at our text here. Consider how weakness leads to strength and to hope. So one of the main ideas in Psalm 31 is that God is our refuge. And because he's our refuge, we can commit ourselves to him, commit ourselves into his hands, as it says. So look at the text here, and and I want you to notice that weakness allows us to experience God. Weakness allows us to experience God. Without our weakness, would we experience God like we do in our weakness? I mean, David is experiencing God, verse 3, his leading, his guiding, right? David wrote this psalm. We read in the psalms as well, you know, he's the good shepherd and he leads us, Psalm 23. Would David have understood that if it wouldn't have been for the emotions and the discouragement and the depression that he faced? I don't think so. Well, verse 5, 7, and 21 talk about God's faithfulness, his steadfast love. David sees that whatever he goes through, God is faithful, that God's love is steadfast, and he never removes it from him. I think this is really at the heart of the psalm. If you were to glance at 5, 7, I think 16 as well maybe, and verse 21 all mention steadfast love. 
It's as if it's to say that we can commit ourselves to God. Why? Because of his steadfast love that is always there. We have this lifeline, and I want you to picture it this way. We have this lifeline of God's love in the midst of emotional despair. We can't always feel it, and we can't always see it, but there's God giving us this lifeline of steadfast love. It never goes away, and we can take refuge in him. Remember, you feel alone if you're, if you're battling this, or if somebody you love is battling it. They feel alone. They feel that God is not close, but he is close. Those are feelings and reality. I want you to just look at verse 21 and 22 if you have your Bible open, because I love these two verses. What David is saying is he's basically saying what I felt and what the reality were were not the same. I mean, look, look at the text here. He, he says, blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. So he summarizes, this is what happened. God gave me his steadfast love while I was like in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, verse 22, I am cut off from your sight, but... You heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. So get what, what David is picturing here. He's painting this picture that, that it, it's like when you are discouraged or depressed, it's like you're in a besieged city, cut off from everything. You know, if, so, if, a, if troops surround a city, they cut, cut off supplies of food. No one comes in. No one goes out. Isolated. And David says, I felt like a besieged city. I was cut off. No one was giving me help. God, you didn't even see me. You didn't even see me. But, then he says, but. But you actually heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you. And you gave me your steadfast love. So the picture that I have is you're a besieged city, but there's this pipeline coming into the city of steadfast love. So though you feel alone and though you feel cut off and though you feel like no one sees you, God doesn't even see you. He does. And here's his steadfast love piped into you. And it's there whether you can feel it, whether you can see it or not. That's powerful. To know that what we feel and what is real are not always the same. That's why when in, in Jonah, when Jonah quotes verse 8, he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Actually, verse 4 he's quoting. Those who pay regard to false idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Isn't Jonah cut off in the belly of the whale? I mean, he's completely cut off. No one can hear him. No one can get to him. And he's basically saying, God, I am in a really desperate situation here. If I were to cry out to idols, I would forsake your steadfast love. I need your steadfast love right now. I need something. I need a miracle. So God's faithfulness, his steadfast love. Also, we experience God's tenderness, verse 9. David's saying, be gracious to me, God. I need you to be gracious because I am in a very difficult situation. Charles Spurgeon said this about the way God views his Christians who struggle. He thinks not the worse of them for their rags and tatters. He does not misjudge them and cast them off when their faces are lean with sickness or their hearts heavy with despondency. Moreover, the Lord Jesus knows us in our pangs in a peculiar sense by having a deep sympathy towards us in them all. When no others can enter into our griefs, from want of understanding them experimentally, Jesus dives into the lowest depths with us, comprehending the direst of our woes because he has felt the same. 
I mean, Jesus quotes from Psalm 31, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And he's not just ripping that verse out of context. He knows chapter 31, and he feels like a besieged city. He feels isolated. He is isolated. And he says, I, I commit myself to you, God. Your steadfast love is better than life. So God's tenderness, God's sovereignty in verse 15, the psalmist says, my times are in your hand. What What times? All of his times, as a child, as a teen, as an adult in his old age, all of his times are in God's hand. God is in control. It reminds us of Romans 8. All things work together for good. All the things that are happening in my life. We can do nothing but entrust ourselves to this God. God, I can't do anything right now. I feel overwhelmed. This cloud is over me. I can't move. I I can't, can't get out of bed. I'm struggling, so I entrust myself to you, God. You're sovereign over all of this and I give myself to you. God's goodness, verse 19. Just notice this little phrase in verse 19. How abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. I started to ponder this idea of God storing up his goodness. So imagine this with me, brother and sister. You're battling anxiety or depression. You can't see God. You can't feel him. But he's there storing up goodness for you. All the while, so that when you take refuge in him, and when he does reveal himself to you, finally, there's his goodness, which has been stored up the whole time you were struggling. He's not just responsive. He's not just waiting. He's storing up goodness for you, verse 19. And verse 20, God's protection. He watches over us. Would we experience these aspects of God if, if we didn't struggle with weakness? Would we? Would we run to the refuge if we weren't aware that we were weak or vulnerable? Let me put it another way for all of you Avenger fans, okay? If a tornado was coming through and I had the suit of Iron Man, would I take shelter in the tornado shelter? I mean, the tornado's coming. I got Iron Man's suit. I don't think I'm taking shelter, hiding away in the... I'm going to fly around, save people, take pictures of the tornado, use the tornado to fly faster or something. I mean... We, unless we feel our vulnerability, unless we feel how fragile we are, we don't run to the refuge. And so you could very much argue that David experienced God like he did because he needed God. He was weak, and so it is with us. So in our weakness, we experience God. And second, something happens in the waiting. Something happens in the waiting. Look at the very last verse of our text, verse 24. Be strong. And let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So as you're waiting on the Lord, God is strengthening your heart. He's giving you courage. Now, you don't feel like you're getting stronger, but there he is. As you wait for him to do what he's promised to do, to be your refuge, he's strengthening you. He is helping you. It's like Isaiah 40, 31. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll rise up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not Grow weary, they'll walk and not faint. So while you're waiting, God is doing something. Final warning here. Warning, beware of shortcuts. Beware of shortcuts. And I point you to verse 6 when the psalmist says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. There are many other comforts that we're tempted to go to. We're very tempted to medicate with you fill in the blank, spending some money and going shopping, alcohol, drugs, 
sexual immorality, the list could go on and on and on. Even good things that we medicate with rather than run to the refuge and we put our trust in vain idols and they're worthless for a remedy. Best they can do is numb the pain for a little bit, make us forget. But what happens? That wears off and we need more. And there is no refuge like our God. There is no one who will actually fulfill our hearts and our souls and keep us in the midst of our weakness because the point is not to get rid of the weakness. The point is to run to God, to be in his presence and to rely on him. And in a real sense, when we run from our weakness, we actually get weaker. So you have, you have a weakness you battle and, and you're like, I don't want this and, and you run from it, whatever. Maybe you're trusting in an idol. Maybe you're doling the pain. Maybe you're just not admitting it. You're not telling anyone you struggle. And you run from that weakness, you become weaker. Because when you take that weakness to God and his strength pours into you and he sustains you, though you are weak, that's where the power is. So our, our, our attempts to get rid of the weakness actually cause us to be weaker. What he can do and what he will do with somebody, though weak with depression, though weak with anxiety, it's hard to know what he'll do. Just consider a couple people through the ages. Abraham Lincoln, many of you know, he had what they called at the time melancholy, used greatly in this country, and yet he had this constant thing. In fact, some people said of him, one person said, he was a sad-looking man. Melancholy dripped from him as he walked. That was Lincoln. I'm sure he smiled too, but he, had, he battled some things. Charles Spurgeon, he's like a rock star around this church, okay? Like Pastor Steve's personal hero, and I love Spurgeon as well. Charles Spurgeon battled Again, they'd probably call it melancholy back then. Lincoln and Spurgeon weren't that far apart in their, um, when they lived and, in fact, actually died very similar ages, strangely enough. But Spurgeon, he, he always dealt with this. And, and if you read anything of Spurgeon's, no, this is a man who gets struggle, who gets suffering. And I want to point you to a, a book, a small book. We have several copies in the, the bookstore, which is the little bookshelf there on the wall, it's small, which I think is kind of helpful. If you're struggling with anxiety or depression, what you don't want is a big, thick book to read through, okay? You want something that's doable. And this is called Spurgeon's Sorrows by Zach Eswine, and it's realistic hope for those who suffer from depression. I found it to be helpful when helping people with depression. Very easy to read through and super biblical, very well-grounded. Spurgeon was used amazingly by God, and I think you could say part of that was his weakness that God used and made strong. And of course, David, who gave us these words today. Uh, last words before we close, applications for you. If you or someone you love is getting pounded by the storm of depression or anxiety, step number one, just start talking honestly to God. Use David's words, right? Lament Psalms. Start t- stop trying to run from it. Just talk to God and say, God, this is where I am. And you may be in a place where you can't even talk to God because you're that down. Grab a friend say, could you pray for me because I can't even pray right now. Two, get help. See a biblical counselor or therapist. Yeah, it's admitting weakness to get help. It is. But when you're weak, God is strong. Make use of all the good gifts that God has given us. Three, if you do not struggle, be careful about thinking you are exempt. I can't tell you how many people never battle these things and then halfway through their life, all of a sudden out of nowhere it came. Be humble. Thank God. I often thank God. You know, my family history is full of mental illness, and I just thank God that he, at this point, has preserved me from experiencing that personally in the way that they have. But it's very much on my heart because I know and love people who who battle it. But be humble. Listen way more than you teach people about these things. 
Lastly, have patience with those who struggle. The goal is important. The goal is not to get them over the anxiety or the depression. The goal is to get them to God. God may be merciful. God may relieve that. He may, but he may not. And the point is not get over the depression, get over the anxiety. The point is get to God, get into the refuge. And in the refuge is where it happens. Maybe God relieves them of it. Maybe he doesn't, but nevertheless, he's making them more like Jesus Christ. So stop thinking, man, we just got to get this person over this, or I just got to get over this battle. Well, it'd be great if God allows that, but he may not. Remind yourselves, the whole point of this is God is our refuge. When we are weak, he is strong. 